Hello everybody, and welcome back to The Fourth Leg, a tabletop gaming podcast all about giving you a leg to stand on. (laughs) Today I'm joined by no guests, but we have our two regular co-hosts, Joe and Kelsey. Joe, Kelsey, say hello. How's it going, everybody? And this episode, similar to the last one with just Joe, Kelsey, and myself, is going to be a campaign update. Uh, exciting enough. We don't have a title for these episodes yet because I'm not very creative when it comes to titles, but it, it's a campaign update. Yay! Yay! Whoop, whoop. To be to be fair, I don't know a whole lot of people who are super jazzed about coming up with titles, so you're fine. You know what? That actually does help. That makes me feel a little bit better. Yeah. It also probably helps that you uh, came up with a name for the podcast, so you're eternally off the hook for yes. naming other things. Hey. Uh, broken clock is right twice twice a day or something. <laughs> Precisely. So our fun facts for today is going to be our favorite film franchise. And we're going to get a little weird. We're going to mix it up today and we're going to start with Joe. Ooh, okay. Uh, so being a wee nerdy lad, uh, I latched on to some of my brother's uh, Spider-Man comics fairly early. So my favorite film or film franchise are uh, Spider-Man films. Specifically, I enjoy the the newest ones with Tom Holland. Uh, I think he's mm-hmm. a great uh, Peter Parker and a great Spider-Man, whereas the other two had elements of one but not the other. I think he's, he's probably the best possible of both worlds. So both uh, Homecoming and uh, Far From Home are uh, very good and looking forward to the next movie. Yeah, and I think Tom Holland has a background in gymnastics or something, so he can, like, realistically, believably make a lot of those moves that Spider-Man does. Kelsey, why don't you take second? Uh, sure. Uh, anybody who knows me very well will not be surprised by this answer. Uh, this answer is actually not a U.S.-based franchise, but my favorite franchise is Dragon Ball, Dragon Ball Z, Dragon Ball Super. Like, anything Dragon Ball related. Um, uh, sorry, Kelsey, you forgot GT. Th- nobody talks about <laughs> GT and nobody cares. <laughs> Piss off an entire franchise in five words. <laughs> There's so much about the, the boo like adventures that you could tell that Akira Toriyama was really going off the rails and the editorial oversight was like nil by that point. He literally just gets to say, I'm Akira Toriyama and then continue writing. Like that's all it is. That's all it is. (laughs) And the only reason that like the androids portion of the story is as good as it is, is because the editors kept coming in and being like, no, that's stupid. Rewrite it. I mean, Dragon Ball Zeke, or Dragon Ball as a franchise kind of thrives on chaos, so it is chaos I'm here personified. For it. <laughs> so my favorite franchise. This is a really tough question because I love a lot of things. Uh, I'll probably stay kind of basic. I really like the MCU. Like I, I know that it gets a lot of very well deserved flack, but. Those are movies that I can go back to time and time and time again. Pretty much any movie in the MCU. Mm-hmm. None of the MCU movies are my favorite films, but as a whole, I'd say it's my favorite film franchise, if that makes sense. 
No, I, I get it. It's they're they're a large grouping of quality films that have a through line. I'm one of those I'm one of those absolute savages that uh, really appreciates Iron Man three for what it was. Oh, I loved Iron Man three. I thought it was great. A lot of people hate it because of the uh, Mandarin swerve, but uh, I think it was the best marketed MCU movie we've seen because they didn't give away mm-hmm. the twist. All they showed us was, yeah. hey guys, there's going to be lots of armors and the Mandarins in it. And to be honest, bringing the Mandarin into the MCU at that point would have been really weird. Because the Mandarin is one of those villains that's, like, so powerful Mm -hmm. because of, you know, all of the abilities that he has access to. That bringing him in would have just, I I feel like it would have taken away from the overarching plotline of what would become Infinity War. Yeah. So... I don't know. I'll, I'll defend Iron Man 3. Fight me. Fight us. I'm here for it, too. I stopped watching the MCU after Captain America Winter Soldier. I saw <gasps> that one in... I know. I know. Shock. I haven't even seen Black Panther yet. Travesty. I really should watch Black Panther because the African art history enthusiast in me is like, oh, but please, I need to see if this references African art. But, like, other than that, I'm not terribly interested in any of them i did see thor ragnarok and i did enjoy that one though but largely because that was directed by the same guy who like directed flight of the concords the tv show (laughs) taika waititi is incredible and i get people not liking the mcu Mm -hmm. there's a lot to not like about it and i totally get it yeah same with that said and done we're going to go ahead and move into our world updates. We're going to go ahead and give you a brief overview of where our world was when we last left it. Again, those were the intro levels to whatever system we're running, D&D 5e, Genesis, or what was the name of your Powered by the Apocalypse system, Joe? Uh, the Veil. The Veil. And we're going to give a brief overview of where our campaign was, and then... We're going to go ahead and update in a little bit more detail. For the sake of consistency or like reminding you, this episode will be covering what is the closest to an equivalent of like D&D levels three through five as we can reach. So this is going to be like in Genesis, you're getting to the third level skills in Powered by the Apocalypse, you're getting to your second or third level up give or take an xp point or two joe or kelsey do either one of you want to kick us off yeah i can get us going uh so when we last left uh i went over my campaign which is tentatively titled uh, agents of zodiac so the party has been kicked out of pods uh and come to terms with the fact that they are clones of their previous selves who were also agents of this uh, ai that has largely preserved humanity in these paradise cities. They had the uh, lab that they were in assaulted by some goons who were presumably uh, hired by a corporation because they didn't want more agents uh, out and about regulating them. And we kind of kick things off from there. So with a few missions under their belt, uh, and likely more questions than answers, the agents will finally have a solid lead uh, after a couple jobs. So a corporate fixer named Yulari Nova has intel that will help them pick up their old selves' tracks. 
So after a job for or against uh, her, the team will learn that they'd previously gone outside the city and off the grid to hunt down a public enemy of Zodiac's. Their end goal appears to have been to travel into the wastes from Agartha, the city they're in, apprehend the hacker known only as DEFCON Zero, and bring them back to Zodiac in another city known as Apollon. This next chapter is going to be something of a road trip. Uh, this is the first time that mm-hmm. they'll have been outside one of Zodiac's cities at the table, and it'll offer a few different challenges uh, depending on how they equip themselves. Now, obviously, if they ally heavily with Zodiac, they can get some better gear, but there will come with some caveats to that as well. Travel to and from most cities are generally by air, but since they want to pick up their own trail and find the hacker, uh, they're probably going to need to set out, uh, whether it's you know by vehicle or bike or something, to try to fit the next piece of the puzzle in. So I have uh, three kind of like set pieces. Uh, the nice thing about Powered by the Apocalypse systems in general is that they're very player-driven, so players can kind of choose to interact or not interact or help build some world lore as the game progresses. So the first thing that I have is a gang called the Asphalt Brigade. Uh, so this will help kind of reinforce what they've been told about the Wastes. So the only people out there are suicidal criminals or maybe both. While they'll outnumber the agents they'll be able to pick up pretty easily that their gear is probably outdated and poorly maintained uh, as a result of having been outside the cities for a decent chunk of time. Obviously, if they're Mm -hmm. criminals, any kind of like facial scanners or something are going to pick them up and dime them out pretty fast. So this could go either way as far as like a social or combat encounter. Uh, The bandits will probably be eyeing some of the nicer hardware that the team has and are likely to give up intel on the surrounding areas or maybe... Uh, any kind of sign that they've seen of DEFCON or the party's previous selves. Uh, in the event that it escalates into a conflict, uh, one of the group's leaders could be sporting like a nicer piece of hardware or potentially hinting that there's something more out there than just criminals with really crummy, rusty gear. Uh, if one or more of the bandits escapes a hostile encounter with the crew, obviously we can count on seeing the brigade again uh, as they're going to give chase Uh, intent on vengeance and getting some nice shiny hardware out of the deal to give them kind of a recurring baddie if that's the route that they take. So I've also got a settlement called Only. Uh, So this is kind of an opportunity to knock the party off their game. So this is the Mm -hmm. first settlement they've seen any sign of that isn't like a corporate facility, so like a mining or like a, a rig or something like a factory outside of a Zodiac City. And it kind of contradicts what Zodiac's told the city as far as like, oh, hey, like, yeah, these places are really inhospitable. Like, if, you know, corporations want to spend money to maintain them, that's fine. But, like, it's just not safe out here. And so depending on how the crew approaches, uh, the people there will either just totally pull up stakes and it'll look like a ghost town. Or they may, you know, and if the crew gets nosy, they may defend themselves if necessary. Uh, if they approach it a little more peacefully, the town may nervously greet the group seeing them as a possible answer to their prayers if things go well and the party's interested this is a really cool opportunity to run something right out of either seven samurai or the mandalorian Uh, you've got a pretty sickly (laughs) subsistence community embattled with uh, some asphalt brigade soldiers that they couldn't possibly beat on their own Uh, if they ignore or decline the offer uh, only is likely to be empty on their return uh, decimated by a raid gone wrong 
if they help, uh, one of the settlement scouts could divulge that he's seen heavily armored soldiers a few hours north of there acting like they were patrolling. And then the last set piece is locating and securing DEFCON Zero. So whether the group gets there by way of short-range sensors or hearsay, they'll arrive at a fairly secure, if desolate location with pretty twisted and warped signs that seem to be blasted by something, and they probably bore the place's name or other details. Uh, the soldiers that the rangers saw, if they heard about that at all, aren't really soldiers at all, but they're some kind of like outdated battle drones patrolling the area mm. uh so the group has the opportunity to sneak fight or hack their way in before barreling into a heavily defended white building and whether they hack or slash their way past some more uh, security drones and some old security but they'll find themselves face to face with an emaciated panicked looking middle-aged man who claims he's defcon zero and then that's probably where that arc would end i love that you're questioning the ethics of everything that the players know to this point this is something that i i personally have gone through with you know growing up in a very like rah rah go america conservative patriot household Mm -hmm. and then you know going through college and experiencing the world for myself and coming to the realization that hey you know america's not as perfect greatest country on earth as the people that I grew up around like to make it seem. And that kind of question is one that speaks very clearly to me and one that I think a lot of people would benefit from being challenged with. I do have a question about your setting, and I don't know if this was already established or not, but is this set in like post-apocalypse America or like where in the world do you have in mind for the setting? So I haven't, and I I'm uh it, it'll be in America. I'm loath to uh divulge where specific cities are because uh, I think yeah, that could okay. be a cool like discovery moment for them. Suffice it to say that both Agartha and Avalon are uh, specifically named because of their location. Avalon is in fact on an island. So and only is an actual town in the US that I just grabbed off the map and was like, "Oh yeah, there are, uh, maybe a pocket of humanity survived here out in the armpit of nowhere." the only pocket of humanity to survive probably not but it works well (laughs) that's really cool i'm also a little mad at you joe because the road trip second arc is kind of where i'm going to (laughs) hey no no judgment uh there's uh you've got to get from point a to point b and help build a world and there's no better way than a road trip exactly man i'm such a sucker for road trips (laughs) I do have one more question, if yeah. you can share. Sure. How high-tech are we talking when we're talking things like uh, short-range sensors and, like, hacking? Because is it going to be something similar to, like, a cyberpunk kind of setting in the cities, like a Final Fantasy VII, where it's kind of high-tech but not really? Or is it going to be, like, super high-tech in the cities? like utopia level and then disgusting desert wasteland outside of the city walls yeah my general inspiration is a lot of the like 2000 ad like judge dread comics so you have mega city one which is it's grimy and gritty but there's a lot of technology involved whether you have you know the iso cubes the lawmaster guns which can shoot you know a ton of different rounds at something Mm -hmm. and really nice like 
machinery and hardware and then you get out in the waste and it's like mad max meets mutants like it's just yeah hard scrabble whatever you can cobble together and make work so a lot of these like bandits are gonna have like rusty oily like cyber arms uh, you know guns that are probably you know 10 to 15 years out of date but you know they kind of still work kind of like the ak you know it, it it's a good gun for its time yeah. and it it's hard to mess up so that's why it stuck around so long there you go that's badass i am the more that i learn about your world joe the more and more i want to see like a graphic novel or an animation set within it <laughs> like straight up don't get me wrong i i love the idea as a ttrpg world but it just it speaks to me like i can visualize your world very 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 well and if i had the talent as an artist it's something that would inspire me to create art you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Funny you uh, should say that. <laughs> hey, we know. I think we know somebody. It's such I a puzzle. Know an artist. I I really liked uh, a few ideas that kind of like collided to make all this work. Uh, obviously, there's some influence from Judge Dredd, as I've already like informed. Uh, I think I spoke mm-hmm. on an earlier episode about paranoia, like the idea of people's clones being just kicked out and the like over mm-hmm. overmind computer just like talking to them and telling them what they need to do but also the the idea of like these characters built around this zodiac whether you know like oh is taurus gonna be you know the big bullish guy like who knows like that's up to my players but it's a cool opportunity mm-hmm. to just pick an archetype and kind of just slap a name on it i am secretly hoping yeah. that whoever becomes taurus is like the littlest petite mexican woman who was not afraid to beat you with a sandal i'm here for it oh i love that oh what is that anime like i wish i could remember the name of it but it's like tiger and the dragon and it's like a slice of life rom-com about this like big tall brooding guy who's the tiger and then this like little tiny firecracker with a lot of emotional damage who's the dragon and it's fantastic i'm gonna get shit from the anime community for not knowing what the name of that is it sounds adorable (laughs) anything else on your world joe uh no i think that's really all i had uh, outlined for this the big thing about road trips you can you just slap together kind of your big set pieces and then anything else that the players uh latch on to when you describe something because inevitably Mm -hmm. your your players will latch on to the the most minute detail you could imagine and then you just kind of roll with it and i know just one more thing before we move on i know powered by the apocalypse systems you progress through failure so you Mm -hmm. fail a dice roll and that gives you one xp and then you know based on however much xp or fails you have you level up right yep so what like how many level ups are you you kind of assuming for this stage of your campaign since out of the three campaigns that we have yours is the least amount of control that you have over level up speed i am shooting for two uh advances is what powered by the apocalypse likes to call them and if i have to cut out a second job in order to get to get that leveled out that's totally fine Uh, i literally built in a hey they're gonna have a couple jobs and then move on to the next thing uh, window specifically mm-hmm. for like oh okay well if I have to cut a job and it ends up because they're really close to where they need to be that's fine I can just move on alright 
Kelsey, would you like to go next? I had mentioned in a previous episode that the world that I'm building is like Kingdom Hearts, but set in a school and with other pop culture properties. Now, I am leaving it largely up to the players what those other worlds are that they would want to explore. Like, I'll let the players pick the worlds. The characters that they are playing will not know. Like, the characters that they are playing are going to be, like, completely new to all of this. Uh, But they will be pulled from their respective worlds to come to the Realm of the Sages to study. Now, with that said, since we're talking about levels three through five, one idea that I had was having, let's say, an incident where a grad student or a upper level student at this Sage Academy is trying to do a summoning spell and they accidentally summon a demon. So not only do they get an F on their exam, but now they have to partner (gasps) up with the, yes, but now they have to partner up with the players to try to intercept the demon that they accidentally summoned and send it back. So that's a possible encounter that the players could have. This is also right around the point where their instructors would be like, okay, we will let you go to other outside worlds under supervision and possibly something could happen to the sage apprentices who are assigned to them to be their supervisors, kind of like a teacher's assistant. Or Mm -hmm. they could go to these worlds and uh, discover that uh, there's basically a supernatural force that is acting upon these worlds. It's not just, oh, ha ha, school and scholastic antics. It's also, there's a very real reason why the Realm of the Sages even exists and why it is that they're trying to archive every bit of like culture and art and music and everything that they can come across and archive it so that it doesn't die. It's because there is a force of demons. They don't realize that they're demons or devils. Actually, there's a difference between demons and devils in mm-hmm. D&D 5e. But mm-hmm. this is a contingent of devils who have taken on a particular disguise and are destroying worlds that will not assimilate with them. And this is setting off alarm bells for the Master Sages in the Realm of the Sages because the Master Sages are like, hold on a second, this army is destroying societies and civilizations before we can even get a chance to study them and now they're extinct and we will never know so we need to figure out what's going on so right around this level is when the players will start to catch on that there's something going on outside of the school they just don't know what the exact details are yet probably towards level five is when they start to connect what exactly this evil force is. So I had mentioned that there's a contingent of devils that are demanding that worlds assimilate themselves to their culture or else they get destroyed. The devil army that is encroaching upon other worlds call themselves the angels of Jehovah. Are you saying that the people who do assimilate to them are Jehovah's witnesses? You could say that. You could say that. <laughs> the assimilation of worlds uh, kind of reminds me of one of Hickman's runs on a New Avengers, I think, when he was doing a lot of like the alternate Earths, like colliding with others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the Illuminati storylines. Mm-hmm. 
some of that was good. Some of it was lackluster at best, but yeah. But the the concept itself, I think, is pretty solid. It honestly makes me think of Stranger Things a little bit. It's funny. It's funny you say that because I've never seen Stranger Things. It's good. It's not for everyone, you know, as any property is going to be. But Stranger Things is worth watching, at least the first two seasons in my experience. Okay. But one of the best parts of Stranger Things after season one is the interaction between the high schoolers and the middle schoolers. Specifically, Steve interacting with the group of nerds that are running around fighting off these extra planar beings, right? And that relationship between this, you know, I'm the cool guy, most popular kid in school, going into I'm, you know, the best babysitter in this damn town is one of the coolest, funniest, most entertaining relationships in that show. So I think bringing that upperclassman who's like, oh snap, I need to make this grade, but also I'm dealing with the guilt of releasing this potentially murderous creature onto whatever world it's in. I think bringing that kind of character into it and exploring the questions about the setting through that Mm -hmm is a really interesting way to do it. I think it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I 100% was going to bring up like, hey, if you have to have somebody babysit them, it's got to be that that character. Oh, absolutely. Like, I'm, a, I'm a big believer in why introduce a new character when one that I have lying around will do. Uh, and that, that also kind of just helps generate more pathos with that character if they if they like him or a lot more animosity if they don't, which is great either way. Like it makes for good role play. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm definitely looking forward to how the characters, the player characters interact with these particular NPCs, not just the, the grad student who accidentally summons a creature that they shouldn't have. And likely this grad student would be the babysitter who would travel with them as the TA supervising them. Depending on how the encounters go and how the grad student does in particular encounters, they may or may not be able to make it. Just kind of depends. I'm trying mm. to leave enough room for, you know, the dice gods to enact their whim because you can never tell. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, it, I think it would be cool to incorporate that if the dice gods allow it that way. But also... I just love the notion of, like, apprentice sages being the equivalent of TAs who have to, like, help out the other students, particularly the player character students, because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the master sages just can't be bothered. <laughs> like, listen, they're they're busy teaching those three and 4,000 level classes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Talking to their grad students, working with them on their master theses. I say this with all the love in my heart for professors because i know that they have really hard jobs teachers in general have really hard jobs they do a lot for you know kids all over the world but i would never have passed my calc 2 class in college if i did not have a stellar ta (laughs) yeah because that professor was the most difficult man to understand that i ever had the displeasure of learning from (laughs) So I'm just saying if I was a player in your game, the TA is the person that I would want to interact with on a normal basis Mm -hmm. until I was 
at the level where I could actually stand up for myself against somebody as knowledgeable as your professors are likely to be. Oh, oh, hell yeah, for sure. Like, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing and hearing how the player characters will interact with some of these, like, assistant sages or apprentice sages and seeing what happens there. I'm also looking forward to seeing how it is that they react to uh, the particular worlds that they may go to in like level four and five. That's right around where Mm. I think it would be appropriate for them to do it because I don't remember if I mentioned this in the previous episode, but as far as leveling up goes, I want to structure this game so that the players level up at the end of the semester. So, like, uh, semester one, they're level one. Semester two, they're level two. So, level four to five is their fourth and fifth semester. So, that's right around when they're the equivalent of a... They're becoming juniors, I believe, in the American education system. If you, if you were talking high school. Yeah, right around there. Um, if we're talking the U.S. education system, that's also right around the time that, like, study abroad programs become available for students to partake in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I figured that that would be a good like rough equivalent for them to work with and the TAs would be probably closer to their experience level so it's a a little bit less like they're going with like a professor and more like they're going with a peer but a peer who knows a little bit more than they do who's been around the block Mm -hmm. a time or two exactly yeah it's like a baby freshman going with like the senior who's definitely been there for a while and knows where the best best pizza is. That mm-hmm. sort of equivalent. Oh, love that guy. <laughs> yes, I love always it. hang out with the person who knows where the good pizza is. Always. So you've mentioned a little bit about traveling outside and a couple events that'll happen at the university. Do you have any like big kind of like milestone events that you're planning like while at university before or after they start traveling? I'm going to leave this largely dependent on the players actions and their choices and what it is that they uh, choose to study. As far as events happening on the campus, there's still some plot beats that I'm figuring out. Also, I wanted to incorporate some events that were happening in this piece of fiction that I've been writing for a while. So it's a matter of figuring out, do I want the players to experience story beats that happened before the piece of fiction that I'm writing or concurrent with the piece of fiction that I'm writing? So still figuring out the timelines for that. There's a lot of figuring out what timelines to pertain to what uh, with this world that I'm figuring out. Because Grace Bless the Kingdom Hearts franchise, anybody who's played the games will know that not every world that you go to happens the same way that the movies do. There are some worlds that you go to that actually are like prequel events, and then there are some worlds that you go to that the movie has already happened and you are witnessing what happens after the movie wraps up. Mm Mm-hmm. And I wanted to try yeah. to keep and that. And then there are some worlds where Clayton's writing a giant chameleon. So Yeah, which is like alternate universe fanfic happening. So that's totally allowed too. <laughs> so I'm trying to leave some flexibility and wiggle room for that sort of thing as well. And also leaving that up to the player's choice. Because I can leave that option open for the players. Like, hey, let me know what worlds you would like 
to have included in this game, but also let me know if you would like to see these worlds before the events of their storylines, during the events of their storylines, or after the storyline wraps up and you just go there. Like, let me know what it is that you want to do. Yeah, and collaborative world building, especially in something that involves pop franchises or pop culture franchises, is a big thing. And I mean, collaborative storytelling and world building should be a part of pretty much anything that you do, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Like, to a certain extent. Like, if your player wants to have been a university student in, like, a D&D game, now there's a university. Congratulations. You have a world-building element done for you. Pretty much. Right? If they want to be a baker, well, congratulations. You have a bakery that your characters can go to that is existent within the world and you didn't even have to think of it, mm -hmm. right? So little things like that can really help flesh out your world, in my experience, uh, in, in a very positive way. Yeah, that helped a lot with my first campaign. Like, oh, you're a uh, barbarian halfling who was banished by your tribe? Well, congratulations. Now there's a barbarian halfling tribe that's wandering the wastes of your world. Cool. That helps with world building. That sort of thing. So when last we left my world, I'm tentatively calling this campaign uh, First Contact because this is basically the player's in far future Earth, right? Far future humanity, where Earth has colonized or turned into mining colonies the rest of the solar system. They have significantly advanced their ability to space travel, medical capabilities, and, you know, devices of war, as humans are wont to do. And the player characters are part of a negotiation crew that are heading to a planet, which I have named now. Ooh. It is Orpheus 9. Ooh. Nice. They are headed to the planet Orpheus 9 to have a meeting with this new sentient species that they have just made contact with. The hope of humanity is that they will be able to come to a peaceful coexistence with these people and potentially cross-colonize with this species the crew of the unnamed ship because i'm going to let players name the ship the ship is going to stop on a couple of planets to pick up local flora and faunus to study back in the solar system and eventually they get to orpheus 9 they crash land because they uh, underestimated the gravitational pull and atmospheric density, and they find themselves in this second campaign arc. They are in the middle of a forest. It's a lot of purples and reds, uh, massive trees, and depending on their actions and quality of their roles and composition of their crew, their ship can be in a state from functional but not okay to completely wrecked and only good for salvage. And depending on where the ship falls on that spectrum, they will either have really good navigation technology or really bad navigation technology, which is going to affect their speed of travel. So first I want to go over really quick the way that Genesis level ups happen. It's similar to like a Dragon Age or a Borderlands. 
in that you have multiple skill trees that you can level up and the more powerful skills are only accessible if you follow a certain path through the skill tree to get to them. Right. Okay. So at this point, the player should just be getting to like their third-ish tier skills. So they're still pretty weak overall, but they have a couple of different things that they can do or a couple of bonuses that make them more durable or more able to dish out damage. So this is not a good situation to find themselves in. They are going to travel through this jungle uh, heading to the negotiation site. It should take about three Earth days, give or take, which on Orpheus 9 is about a day and a half. So they discover pretty quickly that the flora on this planet are actually mostly carnivorous. So that's going to be an environmental danger that they are constantly threatened by. The way that the Genesis dice system works is you can get things called despairs, which are like agonizing failures, Mm -hmm. like something really, really bad happens, uh, or disadvantages, which means smaller bad things happen. And the threat of carnivorous flora is an easy thing as a GM for me to be like, oh, you rolled three threats or, or failures you rolled three disadvantages yikes okay so you failed something bad happens you're caught in like this tangle of vines and being pulled towards the digestive tract of this tree or whatever i'm just picturing the world the world of beasts in moana when moana like is wrapped up in this creature's tongue and it turns out that the creature is like this lotus plant that's slowly bringing her up and then suddenly the lotus plant is like eaten by another large flower (laughs) (laughs) okay uh well there are a couple of other dangers potential dangers in this jungle the first being the native fauna so i'm thinking something insectoid think like giant praying mantises or something to that effect Mm -hmm. but there are faunus around that are dangerous and are predators, right? That the party can either try to avoid or overcome. What the party doesn't know is that they are making their way towards the apex predator or the, like, pack head, uh, the alpha, of whatever creature they are fighting along the way. And it is directly in their path in the carcass of a hollowed-out tree. The other... Uh, potential danger are the native tribes that exist on this planet that they didn't know about. These tribes are essentially in Earth's Neolithic era in terms of their development. So that's the Stone Age. They have very simple tools. They don't really have too much ability to bargain or communicate with the player characters, but there's enough there that they can either tell that, hey, we're friendly now, or wow, we're totally not friendly now. And there are 12 of these tribes, and depending on who they befriend and who they defeat, they can form alliances throughout this jungle that are going to come into play in the next campaign arc before they leave Orpheus 9. And finally, the characters will get to the end of the jungle, they'll get to their negotiation site, and a big reveal happens! I love big reveals. Basically, I'm not going to to hide this from you. Basically, the 
big reveal is that at the end of the first round of negotiations where they're basically just setting out the ground rules for everything, saying, hey, we're not going to hurt or kill you. Please don't hurt or kill us. And, you know, we'll be good. We'll help you fix up your ship. At the end of that, the negotiators for uh, this other species are basically going to say, we're going to tell you up front, we need to colonize Jupiter, which is the mining colony that allows the human race to advance space travel because of the minerals that they're able to find on it. It's going to be a tough call. Yeah, it's going to be a toughie. And the players are basically going to end the campaign arc with the question of how do we find peace with these people when they want to take away the thing that brought us to where we are? Well, and it may be something where they don't even feel like they're qualified to make that decision. Yeah, exactly. It's a big question that they don't particularly have the resources to answer but they have to answer it so i i think it's a fun question to ask the players especially if one of them is the negotiator it can come to a really interesting place in terms of role play you know it's funny that you're talking about these sort of things because i feel like your stories and my story both pertain to colonialism but with two very different angles oh yeah. yeah So that's interesting to me that like the angle that I took was looking at it from, say, the outside view, looking upon upstart colonizers and what they're doing. And yours is more the players are part of the colonizing force. So that poses some interesting questions. And I'm looking forward to what your players do with those kinds of conundrums. I think that all of us are kind of following the same path, and I think it's a good path to follow when you're writing out a campaign or or building a world, and that is building out rather than trying to build up, right? Yeah. So what I mean by that is you start in one central point and you slowly flesh out the edges of that until you have a window right into the world. And as the party experiences more of the world, you are building and writing more of the world in the direction that they're going. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So like for me, I don't need to know every planet that's in the solar system with Orpheus nine. I just need to know what's on Orpheus nine. So why am I going to build Orpheus one through eight? Right. Yeah. If they're not going there, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. This analogy is actually making me think of if anybody has ever played the original Spyro games, the original trilogy on PlayStation 1. Something that floored me as a kid was how you could have Spyro look around and the things that are in the distance, you can see vague outlines of them. And the closer that you got to them, the more detailed that they got. But there was that draw distance... And your analogy just now made me think, oh, so this is kind of like when you're looking around in Spyro and you can tell that there are shapes on the horizon, but you don't know what's there yet until you get closer to it. And I can just make up a planet description on the fly, you know, it's a ball of sand, a la Tatooine, you know, but I I follow that same kind of idea with storytelling too, right? So... Your first 
uh, I guess, arc of your campaign. What we talked about the last time we had an episode like this, our low-level campaign should just be introducing your characters to the world. Yep. Right? Mm -hmm. And then your second arc should be involving them in the world. So they're experiencing things in the first arc, and then in the second arc, they're actually involving themselves with something. So, Joe, with yours, they are experiencing the job of being an agent of Zodiac. And Mm -hmm. then in the second arc, now they're experiencing the world outside of Zodiac, and they're involving themselves directly in a storyline counter to what they believe. Kelsey, you're starting with classes, and then they are directly involving themselves in the failures of another student. Yep. Right? Yep. In mine, they are experiencing the travel, the planet, they're learning about the lore on the ship, and then they are experiencing when things go wrong. And then from here, we go into, you're introducing the story in the next arc. Because if you introduce the story too early it has a tendency to move a little bit quicker than you're anticipating. And you can introduce certain elements of it, like maybe Zodiac's not the person we thought they were or or the entity we thought they were, Mm -hmm. or maybe there's a little bit more to this school than we thought, Mm -hmm. but you're really getting into the, this is what the story is going to be in the third major section of your campaign this is your D post level five this is your okay now we're finally reaching our high level abilities in genesis this is your three or four advancements in a pbta system right this is where your characters are powerful enough to actually make a difference and therefore you put them in a position where they can make a difference yep it's the third act in the five act play where everything starts to go one way or the other whether good for good or ill, exactly. but, but that's where a lot of the twists and turns are going to happen in that in that third act. This is Romeo killing Tybalt, right? It is the catalyst for what drives the story up or down, and that's what we're going to be getting to in our next arc whenever we discuss that, which should be in a few episodes. This is episode 8. Episode 12 is when we'll be getting to those third-tier arcs. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about that. Now, Kelsey, I think you <laughs> wanted to say one more thing about your worlds. Do you remember what, what that was? Actually, this is more a question for the both of you, not so much about my worlds, uh, but uh-huh. this is yeah. more of a meta question. So how do you guys write your campaigns? Because when I wrote my first ever campaign, I had a journal that I wrote down notes in to the best of my recollection during sessions. But this time around, I want to try to flesh things out a little bit more. And I am curious how it is that you both write out your campaigns. Do you do it through a Word doc? Do you keep note cards? Uh, Because right now, I just have a file on Evernote where I'm writing down ideas for uh, events in my campaign but I'm curious what you both do so I have a google folder a document folder and it is full of microfolders and other documents that contain a bunch of different notes about my campaign uh, and I am not a very organized person so I have a folder for like 
combats coming up in the future that I'm still working on or homebrew folders for monsters or magic items because uh, it's a D&D 5e campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, then I have a character folder, which is all of the important character information like backstory and abilities that I might forget. But in terms of like the campaign planning itself, I have it broken down by level. So like with D&D 5e, you know, you have levels 1 through 20. So I have a level 3, level 4, level 5, and level 6 Word document that detailed outlines the story as it's going to play out, assuming my characters go a certain direction. And then I can just adjust that on the fly as needed and shift and redirect. But everything is in those documents from major story beats to what they gain from leveling up to combat notes to like if they do this then that if they do that then this Hmm. everything like that i have in this folder in those word documents and when we are getting close to the next level or the next character advancement that's when i start working on the level upcoming so right now we're about halfway through level six i'm about to start working on the story that they're going to experience through level seven okay Okay. So when I plan, I usually sit down and I'll plan through the next big, like, story art development. Whatever that may look like. Uh, If that's a level, it's a level. If it's, you know, halfway through the level that they're building up to, that's fine. I tend to, in in 5e, I tend to be a milestone uh, fan instead of an XP fan. So uh, I like leveling up at thematically appropriate moments. But uh, I tend to work in bullet points that way I can pick those Legos up and snap them into other places if my players ignore something or uh, just kind of walk around it with a very clever use of a spell or something. I tend to leave myself pointed notes, whether it's like, well, if the party does this, then that, or if B, then C. I'll also try to leave myself some notes if I have, like, a particularly crafty creature that I need to play a certain way. Like, hey, don't forget this ability. Let's the this king do X, Y, and Z in the middle of combat. Because there are times where you'll have your skirmisher monster or even your spellcaster monster and you totally blame brank and run them up in the front and start trying to cave the fighter skull and you're like, oh, I have a plus three. What am I doing? <laughs> Uh, so I do try to try to leave myself some notes like, hey, don't forget, like, this is how this guy's going to attack. Like, this is how this person might behave uh, in a social situation, things like that. Because I think early on, I would like very heavily script stuff. And I learned that uh, not only is playing is having other people try to play through your quote unquote novel uh, not fun. But it's also extremely frustrating if you're very set on your story. And so the looser model of planning is a lot more beneficial to me in the long run. Yeah, because there's a difference between writing your campaign and putting railroads down. And I'm trying to avoid being railroady with this story. Yeah, I think that there are certain things that you can script pretty heavily like the fact that uh, in your campaign an upperclassman is going to summon a demon and the characters or the players are going to be the ones sent after it i think that kind of micro railroading is okay because it sets them on the story path right Mm -hmm. but it's how they get to a to b 
should not be railroaded. I agree with that wholeheartedly. Like, if they pull into the station at B, I think then it's okay to redirect them to station C instead of them going all the way to Z. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, that Yeah, and that's, I mean, with my Power by the Apocalypse stuff, like, you know, the expectation is they're going to get this trinket of knowledge and then act on it. Like, if they don't, mm-hmm. like, the game's going to unravel really fast because they're like, yeah, well, we don't really care what happened to us. Oh, then you don't care what happens in this game because it's it's going to feature pretty prominently. Yeah, and if, if I'm to critique my own campaign that I'm building for this podcast, it reads very railroaded because I don't have players to... Uh, <laughs> to to actually play through it with mm-hmm. right now it, it reads like the players will do this and they will get to there but if i were actually running this campaign it would be like here is your mission how you handle it is your choice right yeah. rather than you know all of these things just happen to you it's these things are a consequence of how you affect the world around yeah and i want to with this with this particular campaign that I'm running, I don't necessarily see instances like, oh, the grad student accidentally summoned something that they shouldn't have. Now the player characters must figure out what to do next. I don't necessarily see that as micro railroady as much as this is a story beat that happens. It is up to the players whether they engage mm-hmm. with it or not. They could decide to just be like, well, that sucks for you, grad student. That's not our problem. Uh, that was your exam. You <laughs> failed it. It's not our fault that you can't do it. It's not our project that failed. <laughs> I think the I think the trick to avoiding railroading is is that question that we've we've talked about a few times, right? Mm-hmm. You set the table, you you put your main courses out on the table, and then you look at the players and you're like, okay, what do you do? Like you mm-hmm. give them options instead of, well, you guys are going to do X, Y, and Z because that's what I have scripted. Like that's not going to get you anywhere, and it's not fun for your players either. And I would I would rather present at least three options to the player characters any more than three and they get analysis paralysis well thank you guys for your updates your campaigns and your worlds are looking really fun and you know whether they're recorded or not i'm really excited to see or hear what goes on when you actually do run them heck yeah yeah i'm uh, i'm really excited to try to get a table together at some point and, and get this thing going And don't forget to subscribe to the non-existent Patreon to listen along. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) All right, guys, any final thoughts? I feel like I should bring up, listen to the previous episode concerning uh, how to balance encounters. Like, because I had written down as a question, what should the characters experience at what levels? And that can tie into uh, balancing out battle encounters and social encounters and we talked about that a lot in the previous episode so give that a listen if you're still like but how do i balance things for level three or the the next tier up what do i do give give the previous episode a listen it may help yeah that's episode six we featured reno he was awesome to have on so we were we were very happy to have them But regardless, listen to episode six and seven for encounter building and how to escalate from there. Um, And if you guys have nothing else, thank you all for listening. We'll see you again in two weeks. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Fourth Leg, a show all about giving new GMs a leg to stand on. You can find Kelsey at Duncan Theo on Twitter. 
and at Kelsey, K-E-L-C-I, dcrawford.com. You can find Joe at JCD0818, and you can find me, Hunter, at Skunkosaurus, S-K-U-N-K-O-S-O-U-R-O-U-S. To get in contact with us about the show or to leave us any questions, reach out to at the fourth leg on Twitter or email the fourth leg pod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. Mm-hmm.